This is the message given by Pastor Peter Sim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for June 11, 2023. The title of the message is, Our Father. I'm actually very uh, encouraged. I I think that's maybe one of the highest compliments that that one could receive, Uh, what Elder Joe said and what Kat said earlier. um, It means that I've been received by you all, and and to be able to have that uh, kind of banter, I I take that as a warm welcome, uh, an expression of love. So uh, thank you for that. Um, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Just one verse. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is not just probably, but the most known prayer, right? The most, probably the, the most known prayer in all of history. And we call it the Lord's Prayer. What's interesting is that, and I don't know if you know, there's another place where the Lord's Prayer is recorded, actually. So you have Matthew 6, and there's one other place, and it's Luke 11. In Luke 11, you have uh, the disciples asking Jesus, teach us to pray. And then Jesus goes forward to teach the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew, however, and you'll see that with verse 9, it doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't say, uh, teach us to pray, and you have Jesus uh, following suit. Instead, uh, you have Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer, teaching the Lord's Prayer in Matthew in part of a larger, larger teaching that he's giving. It's actually part of uh, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? And you have, for instance, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You have all those blesseds. Uh, And then you have... Uh, as part of that, right, you, you have Jesus talking about praying uh, in a proper way in, in terms of not like an unbeliever, praying not like a hypocrite. Uh, and then he gives this teaching on the Lord's Prayer. The reason I bring this up, and, and again, this difference, uh, because again, the disciples ask in Luke, teach us to pray. Not here. Because the normal, typical way that Jesus actually refers to God is he will call God my Father. And he calls God my Father, uh, but, uh, again, throughout the Gospels, but here in the Sermon on the Mount, the way he, he only addresses God once as my Father, and 13 times he says to the disciples, to address, or he addresses God as your father. So there's a very, very consistent and constant repetition here. Uh, it's very intentional that what Jesus is doing. Uh, God wants, or Jesus wants God's people to understand 
when you pray to pray to your father. To pray to God as your father. And again, this, this entire sermon or the Sermon on the Mount as part of this teaching to get sort of to, to prime the people, to, to get the people to really understand that God is your father. So that now when he says, then pray like this, our father, there's something really, really mighty, really, really uh, extraordinary. That, that uh, to call upon my father, he is now your father, he is our father. But of course, right, especially nowadays, uh, you hear to address God as father. In our society today, that, that, that carries a lot of certain kind of, um, certain kind of baggage, you might say. Right? A certain way of thinking like, oh, no. Right? And, and, and it's, it's not just sort of this philosophical patriarchy, you know, down with the patriarchy kind of thing. Um, it's, it's actually a lot of real struggles. Uh, one of the prayer requests that was brought up uh, about uh, abuse, right? You, you have that with abuse of fathers. You have that sometimes with uh, fathers who uh, drink too much and then they, uh, they do things. And, and so th- sort of this image that, that God is our father uh, tends to have a certain perspective that a lot of people just, they don't want to address God that way. Um, well, there's a reason. There's a reason that, uh, that, that God, that Jesus wants us to pray to God as our Father. And, and, and there's something, again, very, very extraordinary, very special in the relationship we have uh, by getting us to address God as Father. Now, the way we're going to look at this is we're going to look at it with three points. Uh, the first point is uh, that when we pray to God as our Father, the first point is to remember who you're talking to. Okay, remember who you're talking to. The second point is to remember who you are as you're talking to God. And then the third point is remember who we are as you're talking to God. Okay, so first point, again, remember who you're talking to. Remember who you are when you're talking to him. And then remember who we are when we're talking to him. Okay, so, so let's take a look at this here. Um, now, there, there's, there's a book called Anatomy of the Soul by Kurt Thompson, and, and he has a really interesting section here dealing uh, with uh, Genesis 3. Of all places to go to, we go to Genesis 3. But uh, I, th- I think it's really helpful here because uh, it really helps us to understand who we're talking to. Uh, and in this book, it, it's, it's actually a scientific book on, on medical, dealing with the brain and, and uh, medical uh, issues there. But uh, he talks about right brain, left brain, and, and uh, the fact that uh, for those in the right brain, sometimes uh, we, when we forget things, when we doubt, we tend to doubt as it comes to specific facts uh, versus left brain, more of this idea of um, it's not so much facts, but more of the emotional aspect of, of, of that's connected to the doubts. And so a lot of doubts actually aren't just simply because you've forgotten the details. A lot of doubt actually comes more from this emotional aspect. And what I want us to see is that looking at Genesis 3, Satan using the serpent is really, really manipulative in the way he is able to uh, get ultimately man to fall. Uh, And what I want us to see here is that the way in which Satan is able to do this is he begins with uh, approaching the woman. And and one thing to kind of make note, the woman, her name isn't Eve. 
Our, our tendency is to call her Eve, but, it, but she's actually not Eve. The reason why she takes on the name Eve later on comes in Genesis 3 when Adam names her Eve because he remembers the promise that God gives in Genesis 3.15, that there will be a seed, there will be a savior that's going to come. And we know that uh, Adam actually believes that promise because then the woman is named Eve, the mother of all the living the mother of all the living. Uh, Adam is not uh, completely overwhelmed with the idea of, of there's no hope, this is it, but rather he's holding on to God's promises. Uh, and you see that uh, later on uh, with Genesis 3 and then Genesis 4. So the woman in the garden, what the way in which Satan comes to her, and again, it's, it's really interesting here, is that he begins by saying, did God really say? At no point does he ever tell the woman, eat it. Like he, he actually doesn't address specifically, eat the fruit. All he does is he, he starts it off with, did God really say? And what he's doing is he's beginning to alter the way that she remembers who this God is. Did God really say this? And one of the interesting things here, too, is the way, in which this, uh, the way in which Satan is able to isolate her away from Adam. Away from the community that she knows. Now, there is a passage uh, there, uh, I, th I think it's in verse 17, where uh, it says that uh, he gave it to, she gave it to Adam, the fruit to Adam who was with her. There's some different ways in, in understanding that, but I think what that is, is saying is that the woman was apart from Adam, and then when she gave it to him, he then ate it who was with her. So it, it, I think it, there's two different timelines there. Uh, but uh, I, there is a sense where the woman is isolated away. She is removed from the community, making her much more susceptible to the temptations of the serpent. And the reason I bring this up as well is because very often what happens is uh, people, as they begin to stumble in their faith, as they begin to struggle, many times that struggling comes when they become more and more isolated. And we really saw that, I think, throughout the pandemic. When we start to isolate ourselves and we start to, Hebrews actually describes it as drifting away. And the imagery is like a boat that isn't hooked on with the rope. It's just sort of on the waters, and it's drifting more and more. And before you know it, like a day later, it's way out there. And so the idea here is that, again, as the serpent is able to isolate the woman away, and as he's beginning to challenge, what do you really remember what God said to you? What do you really remember here? And so that offer that God made, that you can eat from any, any tree, any tree in the garden. And that offer, when you hear that, is very generous. But now when the serpent starts to, having isolated her, she's away from Adam. And she, he starts to play games in her head and starts to say, well, did he really, did God really say this? That generous offer now suddenly starts to feel more restrictive. 
what felt very generous, very abundant. God, I'm, I'm just so thankful, God, for what you are giving here. Look at all of these. It's just this one tree that I don't eat, but, but all of the other trees. This is amazing. Now suddenly, oh, yeah, that one tree that I can't. Hmm, what did God really say? That generous offer of that one tree. Now it sounds like God is being restrictive and God is uh, being stingy. That generous offer is flipped inside out. And what the serpent, what Satan is doing is he is chipping away at her trust in God. To the point now, what she's beginning to do is, oh, okay, what did God really say? Oh, God said, don't even touch it. Don't even touch it. And we know that chapter earlier, God never said that. And she's now trying to fill in the blanks. What did God really say? Don't touch it. And you have the serpent maneuvering to get her to think very unfavorably of God's gracious, generous offer. And then he concludes all that. You're not going to die. Can you really be sure what, what, what God is now saying? It goes a little bit further. Did God really say it to now? Can you even trust what God is saying here? So that book, Kurt Thompson, uh, he, he writes this, the condescension, the disdaining tone, the dismissive glance, his words are the mechanism by which he delivers the nonverbal message. You believe what? You're that gullible, that naive? He goes on to write, the woman's mind progresses from the primal sensation of fear to the more distinct emotion of shame. At some deep level, she begins the descent into the cavern of emotional anguish. We use the word shame to symbolize. She's immersed in it, drowning in it. And he concludes then with this, that sense of being unimportant, dismissed, disregarded, inadequate, inferior. I'll tell you what that's about, Eve. That's God revealing his true regard for you. He's dismissing you. He doesn't want you getting too close to what he really has. See, that is ultimately then that, that chipping away of her trust in God. God doesn't really care about you. God isn't that emotionally invested in you. And if that's how, again, that's how you need to understand who this God is. And I want you to know sort of the, kind of the, uh, the coup d'etat or, or, or that, uh, the crowning achievement of what the serpent does here to really get the woman to fall into what he's saying. And again, it's not just one snap of the, of, of the fingers to get her to this point. It is extremely manipulative, extremely, uh, he enables it so that slowly but surely, chipping away so that finally without real, like, like just really teetering, so that now he says this, the way in which he addresses, the way in which Satan addresses God in Genesis 3, he addresses God as Elohim. Why is that bad? That, that sounds great. Elohim, I mean, that's God. That, that, that's a fantastic title, but I want you to see what he's done here. See, again, we're looking at it and think, well, what's the problem? But understand the manipulation that he's doing here in order to 
uh, in order to rework in her mind who God is. Because there's subtlety in this, in the way in which he's doing this. By addressing God as only Elohim, how was God addressed in Genesis 2, though? And if you look just a chapter before, how was it that God reveals himself to the woman, to Adam? How, how, how is he revealed to them? It's not just Elohim. It's actually Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim in chapter 2 to now in chapter 3, the subtlety of dropping the Yahweh to now say Elohim. Why, why, why is that a big deal? Well, uh, imagine, again, think, thinking about, and, and I'm going to use Pastor James here. He's not here. So um, it, it is, it, imagine his daughters at home calling. Now, all of you may say either Pastor James or, or, or James, but can you imagine his daughters at home, instead of calling her dad, pastor, right, pastor, and, and talking to him, pastor, can, can uh, this and that. Or, uh, again, an, another sort of title that we often have. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's any doctors uh, in the congregation, uh, but if there's a doctor in your congregation and, and uh, being at home, and we'll say the wife is a doctor, uh, is at home, and, and could you uh, imagine uh, the husband then addressing his wife as doctor what now, right, uh, as doctor instead of maybe an intimate name that he has for her? Like last week we said, honey. Could you imagine then where instead of calling his wife honey or dearest or by her name, instead what he calls her is doctor. I, you know, and if you were to hear that, I, I think a lot of us would immediately begin to think, oh, is, is, is everything okay in the home? <laughs> Because there's a lack of intimacy. And what I want you to understand here, what Satan is able to do in getting, e or in getting the woman to ultimately then uh, bring, sort of become the first evangelist of, of the serpent to bring Adam, eat, uh, Adam in and eat the fruit and uh, result in the fall of humanity. All of this stems from, again, the serpent is able to say, call him Elohim. He's Elohim. It sounds correct. And yet by simply dropping the Yahweh, simply dropping the intimacy that God's people have with God, you see where this goes. See, when we are now able to call God Father, there is a restoration of that intimacy with God. The kind of intimacy that, that, that there, there's a sense where we, we forget the closeness that, that uh, we have with God, the kind of closeness in the relationship that we have with God. But we tend to, I think perhaps, only think of him as Elohim and we forget that Yahweh part. Now, if you remember from last week, we, and, and I've addressed this in the past, Yahweh is that very, very sweet, intimate name that two people have for one another. And it's not boyfriend, I want to make this very clear, it's not a boyfriend-girlfriend name. And actually, the Bible never talks about boyfriend and girlfriend. There's no such thing as that. Um, there, there is no boyfriend, girl. It's a name between two covenant partners, between a husband and a wife. And it's the kind of name that a wife will call her husband that no other woman gets to call her husband. 
It's the kind of name that a husband gets to call his wife and no other man gets to call his wife that name. Right? And, and again, I just use, for example, the name like honey, right? Or, or, or sweetie or, or whatever other myriads of names that, that you can think of. Good names, right? That you can think of that expresses that intimate emotional connection with them. Well, this is who our God is. When Jesus then comes and says, address him as father. It's restoring that relationship of that intimate covenant relationship of being able to call Elohim Yahweh. Yahweh. To call this transcendent almighty God Yahweh, father. And not just that, but I mean, Paul goes on later to explain it's not just Father, but, but it's his Abba Father. And, and thereby, this idea of the childlike faith, Abba, right? This sort of the first words of, 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 of a baby. And, and we have that with a couple uh, young ones here, right? The first words you hear of that baby saying Abba not even able to pronounce Father uh, in, in that whole sense, but Abba. The intimacy, the kind of affection that, that one has. And so we see this Abba Father. We know he is our Father, but again, there's this sense of doubt sometimes, given our circumstances, is he really there? Is he really intimate? Does he really care? Is he invested in me? And where we're wondering to what level? And we give in so many times to the lies, to the deception of the serpent, of Satan, allowing our circumstances. And again, it's not like, it's not like God or it's not like the serpent is going to come in and, and someone's going to come. Hey, everyone here, let's go rob a bank. Okay. Right. No one's going to, no one's going to uh, join in on that. Right. I mean, that's, that just sounds foolish. But the subtlety of the deception where we give in to that deception and we forget who we're talking to. When we pray, we forget who we're talking to. We're talking to this almighty, sovereign, transcendent God, and yet we can call that God Father. We can call that God in that personal connection, that sweetness of that intimate name. Again, other kids are not going to call me Dad. I mean, my oldest, 15, actually called me daddy. And, and he was actually made fun of for that. Uh, but, but that hasn't changed him from saying dad. Like, I, I thought, well, it's gone from daddy to sometimes bro. So, <laughs> it, 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 but even, even in that bro, bro, right, wh- wh- however you want to say that, it, it, it's, there's that sense of intimacy. There's that sense of intimacy where uh, even as he calls me daddy, we understand, again, he knows who he's talking to. He's not going to call anybody else daddy. No other child here, anywhere, is going to call me dad, daddy. Right? I'm not going to hear that. And I don't expect to hear that because that relationship isn't there. However, when it comes to then the relationship that we have with God, Jesus is saying, call him Father. That intimate relationship you have with him, you need to understand that. But again, emotionally, do we trust it? 
Do we trust this God as our father? Are we convinced when our circumstances seem to say all this other stuff, when our circumstances, our situations seem to say God isn't really there? And very simply, very easily, very subtly, the deception takes place. Did God really say that? Does God really care for me? Look what happened here. Look at what's going on with the loved one. Right? Sometimes it's not even the pain that you yourself are going through. It's the pain of a loved one where you start to ask and inquire, God, are you really there? Do you really care? Are you really that invested? Because it's not happening to you. It's happening to someone else, and you feel sort of hopeless behind that. And so as you start to really think about, again, God, are you there? Are you really invested? Do you care that much about me? Does my words really, do you really hear what I'm saying? And we need to, again, remember and remember again and again, Jesus is saying here right now, address him as father. Don't address him as Elohim. Don't address him as uh, as El. Address him as Father, Abba, Father. Because in knowing and understanding who God is as your Father, you're going, it's going to change the way you understand who you are. Right? It's going to change the way you understand who you are. And I want you to think of it uh, in this way. Think of it like this. Think of it as, uh, I don't know if any of you rent a home, if, if any of you have property that, that you rent. Uh, but how do you treat the home, the tenants that uh, live, or, or, you know, better yet, a room, do you rent a room in your home? And if you do, as you rent that room to a tenant versus a child living in the other room, do you treat them the same or do you treat them differently? Because with the relationship you have with the tenant, they are a land, you're a landlord, they're a tenant. It's business. And so what makes that relationship with that person renting a room good? Well, as long as they pay their rent monthly, they don't cause problems, it's all good. You have no issue. It's a good relationship. As long as they're performing the way they should, then it's good. You have no problems. As soon as you start to make that relationship with the tenant more personal, and you start to, well, how, how's it going? And, and, and uh, how's your, how, how are your parents? How, how's this or that? And it starts to blur the lines a little bit. It gets a little bit harder when they stop paying rent and that you want to, right, you, you want to uh, evict them. It becomes much more difficult because the relationship that you have with that tenant that's living in your home, it is a business relationship. It is based upon their performance of giving to you rent in a timely manner and not causing any issues inside the house. That is a relationship. You are the landlord. That is the tenant. But what about your child in that house in the other room? Is it based upon their performance? Well, if you don't get straight A's, you're going to, if you don't get a job, you're, you're out. Maybe, well, you're 18 now. What's going on? But when they're 15, 13, 12, 10, is that what we do? No. 
The relationship that you have with that child isn't like that. Right? That child can live there, and even when that child messes up or, or does something that's wrong, we do not evict the child out of the house. And so understand when God says, pray then like this, our father, he doesn't say, pray then like this, our king in heaven. He doesn't say, even though he is our king, he doesn't say, pray then like this, our king in heaven. He doesn't say, pray then like this, our creator, even though that is also true. He doesn't say, pray then like this, our friend. No, he says, pray then like this, our father. Because the relationship that we have with him is not based upon any sort of performance that you're able to do as a tenant You don't live in the house of God as a tenant, but you live in God's house as his child. Therefore, what are you beginning to see? The relationship you have with God is based upon your performance? You doing X, Y, and Z? No. Your living in God's house is not based upon how good you are, how how, uh, prim and proper you might be, elbows off the table. That isn't the basis for why you stay in God's house. Rather, the reason why you are in God's house is because of the relationship by grace that has been established. Why? Because Jesus can call God Father. That you now have that privilege of calling him father, not based upon your performance, but based upon that grace. Which means then that you, and and there's this beautiful doctrine that we have called adoption. Adoption, that beautiful doctrine of adoption is God saying that you've been adopted into the family of God and your, and your status as one who's been adopted, it changes the way that God sees you. God says, you now, because I've adopted you, you have the inheritance of everything that is mine. Everything that belongs to me now belongs to you. It changes the way that God sees you, which then changes the way you see yourself. God sees me as someone where everything that he owns now belongs to me as well. That I will inherit that. It changes my status. I am no longer a tenant. I am not a tenant. I am not an enemy. I am not a stranger. I am not a burglar. No, I am his child by grace adopted into his family. It's not the result of my efforts of breaking into the home so that God would uh, accept me. No, I am accepted. I am accepted not because I've done X, Y, and Z, but I am accepted because of what Jesus has done for me. He calls him father and he is now telling me I can call him father. But thirdly, Thirdly, as we think about this here, the fact that we can call him our father. And there's two aspects here that we need to remember, the fact that we can call him our father. And this should keep us from being too individualistic in our prayers. Because to call him our father, right, 
when we gather together, well, even here uh, in, in worship, we don't say my father. Right? It's not 50 individuals saying my father in unison. No. It changes the way we understand who we are by saying our father. And when we say our father, uh, what, what one person describes as the great leveler, the great leveler of everything. And, and what he means by that is you now have the beggar and the king who both address the same God together as our father. And that changes everything. That there isn't anybody here in the congregation that you could ever look upon and say, no, that's not your father. No. The fact that we together and there is no other, uh, other aspects of who we are that prevents us from being able to say together, looking at the person. You're probably sitting next to people you like that are next to you, but look like in front of you and behind you. And those people, there's nobody here in the congregation where you're going to say, yeah, you know what? He's not your father, but rather, no, we can call upon him as our father. Together, we address God and we are brother and sister. How easy it is for to dismiss perhaps younger people in the congregation. Well, you don't really understand. Or older people. Well, they're a little bit too old. And it's very easy to dismiss them. It's very easy to dismiss based upon ethnic lines. It's very easy to dismiss based upon social economic lines. It's very easy for us to be dismissive of people based upon all of these worldly characteristics rather than understanding we are calling upon God as our father. The fatherhood of God. And the only reason, again, the only reason we can call upon God as our father is because of what Jesus did, enabling this to be true. Because the one place, the only place where uh, Jesus does not address uh, God as his father, the only place he doesn't address him as father is when he's on the cross. And rather than saying, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Because his father wouldn't, wouldn't do that in that sense. But instead addressing him properly as the God of judgment and wrath against what? Against not his sins, but against your sins. And for him to then say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he go through this? Why does he endure this except for the reason so that you can call his God, his father, my father, our father? Why would Jesus go through this? Why would he enter into this world taking upon the limitations of humanity? Why would he be willing to endure under the authority of two parents who barely understand who he is? Why would he go through the, like, like as, as young people, you want to say that my parents don't get me. How do you think Jesus understood this? You really don't get me. Where he's even, again, he's left behind at the temple. It's like, you didn't understand. How could you do this? You don't understand. His own brother's calling him a, a, a drunk. His own brother, his, his uh, other countrymen, saying that he's possessed by demons. And then when he goes to the cross to endure the betrayal of a dear friend, to in, endure the denial right, of someone that he broke bread with, to go through all of that, why? 
to then be mocked, to have a robe cloaked over him, to be punched in the head and to say, hey, prophesy, who hit you? To go through all of this for what reason? What same reason could there be that Jesus would go through all these things for what? So that you could call his father your father, our father. He goes through all of that so that you have the great privilege of the intimacy with his God. And here's the thing. Is he jealous of that? Is he sitting there or as as he's hanging on, man, you know, these people don't even appreciate what I'm doing for them. They don't even understand what's going on. And it's like he recognizes it because what's the first thing he says when he goes to the cross? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He is not hanging on the cross embittered, hanging on the cross angry at everyone else. They don't appreciate what I'm doing. They don't, they, I'm, I look at all this serve. I've came to not to be served, but to serve, but they don't appreciate my service. He's not doing this. As he hangs on the cross and he goes through all of this, and then on top of that, and and here's, I think, uh, perhaps one of the more difficult things. Let me share my inheritance with you. Let me share this entire inheritance. It's yours. It's yours. And we see that with Revelation 3. In Revelation 3, I think it's 20 or 21. Where for everyone who overcomes, come sit. On my father's throne, just as I sat on this throne. There's nothing that that Jesus, it's all yours too. He is glad to share all of these things with you. And all of this is because you can call him father. You can call your, this God, father. So it changes the way, when you understand who you're talking to, it changes the way you understand who you are, and it changes the way you understand who we are, so that as a congregation addressing our God as our Father, the intimacy, we want to encourage other people in the congregation to know this God, to remember this God. When they're going through difficult times and circumstances, and you see someone who might be drifting, you want to encourage them to go back to God, go back to, not Elohim in that sense, but go back to Yahweh, go back to Abba Father. To really pull them in and say, This is who our God is. It's not just your God. It's my God. It's your God. It's our God. And here in Long Beach, Long Beach OPC has this incredible opportunity of then as salt and light to this community to show this kind of incredible, not worldly unity, but a heavenly unity that can only come because you all, we all can say our Father, our Father in heaven. This world does not understand what that is. This is not remember the Titans and bringing two teams. No, this is this kind of connection. This kind of unity is something that goes far beyond what this world understands. And as you're here in Long Beach, you become the tangibleness of that. 
right? As, as you make the job of the elders easier to care for you, and as, as Pastor Lim preaches that gospel to you, that together as a congregation, you are all calling upon God, our Father, which art in heaven, and a desire uh, to, to, to see others join. And so those prayer requests, people who accidentally walk into the church, even they can then call, and the hope is that they would call God our father my father is your father let's call him our father i mean this is that motivation to even evangelize then our father and i really again want to encourage you all remembering what it means we're not renters we live in the household of god and we know the intimate relationship that we have with this god and no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter who in this congregation, who's a part of this congregation, that we would extend ourselves to really, again, understand our Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for the opportunity uh, this evening to remember who you are. Not only as Elohim, but as Yahweh Elohim, as our Father, because the Father of Jesus Christ is now our Father. And it's not just singular, but it's all of us here. Oh God, how sweet this is. The kind of intimate relationship we have with you. And the intimacy that you have created here in this congregation. That on our lips, as we talk to you, we talk to you as our Father. And so thank you, Father, for this blessing this evening. That we would love you together. That we would honor you. That we would worship you. That we would glorify you. That we would exalt you. That we would give to you what you so richly deserve. And that we would encourage each other together to do this. Truly to love our Father and to love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.